Comic Book Club News gives you the comic book news you need to know first thing in the morning every weekday in the form of digestible three to five minute long podcasts. Comic Book Club News recaps breaking news stories from Marvel, DC Comics, and beyond Monday through Friday. New episodes drop 6 a.m. ET in the Comic Book Club News feed so they're ready for you when you're ready for the day. Comic Book Club News. You hear it second or third, possibly fourth. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Stack. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And on The Stack, we talk about a ton of books that are coming out this week. Let's kick it off with a big one. Transformers number one from Image Comics slash Skybound by Daniel Warren Johnson. Uh-oh. Now, oh boy, I, I just want to mention up front, Pete, our number one Daniel Warren Johnson fan, is not here, but... Coming up later today in the Comic Book Club feed, we got an in-depth interview with Daniel Warren Johnson all about Transformers number one, talking about all the big spoilers. Pete got to go ham on his love for DWG there. So it was all ham. It yeah, all it's a ham. full ham sandwich, uh, which is like a super tight banana when it comes to fandom. Um, I mean, we talk about it so much in the interview. Uh, this book is so good. The art is amazing. If you want to know all about uh, DWJ's process, this interview is so good because he really gets into it. And it's more amazing than you think. But just for the book, like it hits you in the in the nostalgia in just the right in the visual sense. Mm-hmm. And then but at the same time is pushing the story into this new place, a classic Daniel Warren Johnson, like um, where he grabs your heart and squeezes it like sort of a lot, like more mm-hmm. than you expect more than more than you want. But then you right. like it afterwards. So just to give a little bit of table setting about this for people who don't know, though, I assume a lot of you do, given the fact that this already sold over 150,000 issues to comic book stores and sold out. It's going to a second printing. It's a big deal. You all know about it. But just in case you don't, there is this new Energon universe that Robert Kirkman and company Stealth launched. It kicked off with Void Rivals, which is an original property that has brought in some Transformers characters from the original animated series. And then here, there's the second title coming up, Transformers Crash Land on Earth. It's a new continuity, but it's taking back to the old school looks of Optimus Prime and Starscream and a bunch of other characters. But one of the things... And I'll say, other than playing with him as a kid, I'm not a big Transformers guy. I love this. And the reason I love this is all the reasons you mentioned and also how hard it went. There's a big spoiler here. But and this is something we talked to DWJ about about a little bit is like they they kill Bumblebee in the first issue, which is insanely hardcore, but it feels motivated and it sets the stakes properly. I don't usually care about yeah. the human characters at all in a Transformers thing. It always feels shoved in. I'm like, it's okay. I don't need humans to relate to this thing. Just give me the uh, less humans. Yeah, I less have plenty humans. of humans in my life. I if I was hanging out with Transformers all the time, I'd be like more humans. Mm-hmm. Please. Here's the thing: I've been trying to ride around with my human friends for years, and it does not work. No matter how many times I stick my feet in their mouth, they don't drive me anywhere. Exactly. I'm always whispering in my wife's ear: transform, transform, <laughs> become a scooter or something, a jet ski. And this is during sex, right? Yeah, that's what that's when we're whispering. <laughs> <laughs> why well, I would I would whisper a lot. I don't know. I, don't know. I can't think of any other uh, opportunities to whisper to your wife. The this is a great book. Yeah, yeah. Don't, is, you don't whisper to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the this is a beautiful book. This is great. Pete sent in a bunch of notes. By the way, they were basically like Daniel Warren Johnson. I love you. There's a lot of cursing in them, so I'm not going to read them. But just know that he fair. loved the book as well. And again. Again, listen to the interview. You can hear him go to town on it. Go totally ham there. Let's kick it off with a not kick it off. Let's keep kicking it off. Let's keep kicking Never it off. Everyone's a kick up. <laughs> Everyone's a kick up. Well, but we got another big title here. Gods number one from Marvel, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Valerio Shidi. This is something that Marvel has been hyping up for months at this point, putting little excerpts throughout other books to let us know that these characters who are showing up at Gods They've been here all along in the Marvel Universe. The phrase that they've been using is this is going to reshape the cosmology 
of the Marvel Universe, which is a phrase that nobody understands or knows except for Jonathan Hickman. But essentially what it means is that he's going to take the godlike characters like Eternity and the Living Tribunal and figure out a new way. Make them fresh. Make them fresh. He he said he's going to reframe the comicsology of the Marvel Universe. Do you think that? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So he's going to make it younger and fresher. So like instead of the Living Tribunal, it's going to be the Living Tribby B is what they're going to call him. Yeah. Is that cool? And it's going to be E-Tournity. Oh, that's pretty So it's a two instead of the, yep. So now that we have the first issue, we finally know what this is about. And what we've actually got are these two, not opposing forces, but two different forces who work for these enormous beings doing their will on Earth. On one side, you have this one guy with a beard who's pretty cool and wears a red coat. And there's just one of him. And on the other side, there's a bunch of extremely pale people, one of Jonathan Hickman's favorite things, and Mm. there are a hundred of them. However, by the end of the issue, there are less of them, and that kicks off an imbalance of power that presumably is going to spin out through the series. Um, Can I say a positive thing and then a very negative thing? My very positive thing here is the art by Valerio Shidi is beautiful. It's commensurate superhero art throughout the book. As always, Jonathan Hickman knows how to write a book and knows how to structure a book. The characters are very fun and engaging. The negative thing I'm going to say is if you wanted to do a Doctor Strange book, just do a Doctor Strange book. You don't have to create a second Doctor Strange and a second Clea in the same book as you already have Doctor Strange and Clea. Well, that was my thing is I was like, this is not at all what I expected. I expected it to be sort of like a big thing or we would focus on a couple already known Marvel cosmic characters. Someone like uh, like you get a Drax uh, maybe in there or a Terax with a guy, Axe guy, some former heralds. Mm-hmm. Who was the guy that had the stick with the fire at either end? Uh, not Firestar. I know. he. No, the, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I have those guys hang out who you know, we haven't heard from them in a long time. Maybe some Guardians of the Galaxy that were on the old team, that mm-hmm. we, like Martin X or somebody. Anyone with an X at the end of their name, they should be hanging out here. But instead, we get this sort of like uh, halfway between a Doctor Strange and a Constantine roguish mm-hmm. dude who's like looks a little world weary, but he's has to leave his love. It's it's just a, such a specific story. This felt more like a a creator own book that is just suddenly put on the top of the Marvel Universe in a way that I don't quite understand. Having said all that, that's just my expectations and what happened. Like, I actually, you know, I like the story. It seems mm-hmm. fun. It's classic Hickman, like big, uh, sort of dense, wide-ranging storytelling focused back down on a, a character dealing with a, a very specific situation. I like the romance. I like the main characters. They're very engaging. There are funny jokes throughout here. But again, not to keep harping on the same thing, I think I think you're correct in terms of your expectations going in here, because ultimately what this does feel like is that Hickman wanted to do an image book that was sort of a Doctor Strange Clea thing and then breaking it out into wild directions and then thought, oh, I could just do this in Marvel. But then you have this weird doubling up of the Doctor Strange type character hangs out with Doctor Strange. The Clea type character is also there at the same time as Clea and they're serving sort of the same roles. I think the presumption here is this is like the overture issue and we're going to blow it out in a big way and go absolutely wild in the next couple of issues now that we know the stakes for the central relationship. But but I don't know. For something that they've been hyping up in a wild way, it doesn't feel like it's adding much to the Marvel Universe as of yet, even though, again, it's a well-made comic that generally I enjoyed. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. Looked it up. Fire Lord. Fire sort Lord. of the most basic name you could think of. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Lord of Fire. Why don't we yeah. move on to another one? Batman number 138 from DC Comics, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Jorge Menez. This is part of the Gotham War storyline that's pitting Batman against Catwoman. In this issue, we are picking up on Batman has captured Red Hood, who has been on Catwoman's side. And big spoilers here that I'm going to get into, but Batman essentially brainwashes Jason Todd so that whenever he feels the urge to kill, he feels immense fear instead and can't do it. The entire Bat team comes up against Batman here. This is part of the overall arc that Chip Zdarsky has been building, that the Batman of Zur and R, which is the Batman who resides 
inside Batman's brain is sort of breaking through. There's a lot of other things that are very wrong with Batman right now. But arguably, I would say they have almost gone too far in terms of turning Batman into the villain of this arc in order to contrast him with Catwoman. What's your take on it, Justin? I mean, I agree with you. This, the stuff that Batman's doing here, both with Jason, which is like fucked up and like intense. It it is too far, but really the way that he kicks Nightwing in this issue, I was like, yo, that was too hard. He's your friend. He's your son, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, particularly after Batman slept for eight weeks or something like that, he should be rested. He should be fresh. Yeah. He should be ready Good to mood. go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe he's like he's you know you get sometimes you get up mm-hmm. too fast and you don't oh, quite yeah. know what you're doing and then suddenly you find yourself like drinking orange juice, uh, hot orange juice out of the coffee pot mm-hmm. or like whatever oh, you're particular. Yeah. Do you know what like they it. should do? This is just like a little bit of an art note for this book to make it a little clearer. They should have him sort of like his lids kind of half down. So he's not really like, focusing yeah. on stuff. And one of his ears is kind of like crooked askew. Like his, oh. he hasn't combed his hair yet or taken a shower. And then a little uh, curly Q air line above his head to show that he's confused. <laughs> oh, and then he I should whisper to say stink lines. He says stink lines because he, yeah, he stinks too. You sleep yeah. for eight weeks. I don't see him shower. If he yeah. doesn't shower, if you don't see him shower, any characters in these comics, they don't shower. Yeah. But then he should whisper to Catwoman, be a jet ski or something. <laughs> it's form. <laughs> I do like this arc. I understand what they're going for, but it does feel a little much in terms of what is going on here. And at the same time, we've got Vandal Savage, who has taken over Wayne Manor, is working with Scandal Savage, who has been embedded. Scandal, who has been embedded in Catwoman's team. And they're turning Catwoman's entire League of Thieves into a League of Shadows in order to take back some sort of immortality thing. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I like the philosophical discussion. I'm not 100% sold on the rest of the plot until we see how it turns out, I think. I love the idea of naming your child a a rhyme of your name. That's a Mm -hmm. totally normal thing to do, like Vandal and Scandal. Uh, I also like what's done here with connecting Vandal Savage's powers, immortality, with the Lazarus Pits, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know if we've seen before, but I actually think it, it tracks in a really nice way. And in general, I think this event, specifically the Chip Zdarsky stuff, goes really hard in ways that separate it from a lot, from what Mm -hmm. I thought this event was going to be going into it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not particularly straightforward, but I want to see what the overall arc of the thing is when we're over, which is going to be very soon. It's a very short form event. The Midnight Show, number one, from Dark Horse Comics, written by Cullen Bunn, art by Brian Hurt. This is another spooky, spooky comic from the old Bunster. And here, the Bunster is bringing on the monsters, or rather all of the monsters, as a long-forgotten monster film that jammed together all of the universal horror-style monsters is finally being shown. And it seems to be magically bringing those monsters out into the real world in a town at the same time as the screening is going on. I really enjoyed this. I think Cullen Bunn can get sometimes a little esoteric and cosmic with his horror. This is very down-to-earth, straight across the board, perfect Halloween fare in terms of having a lot of blood, having a lot of guts, having a lot of scares. And I really love the way they laid out, uh, Brian Hurt laid out the sequence of cutting between different people of the town being attacked by these monsters while the people in the theater watch what's going on. I thought that was very nicely done. Yeah, I do too. Like this, of the onslaught of Halloween books we're about to get in the next few weeks, this one really stood out as being like a really nice visual. Visually, I like the sort of jumping back and forth between the sort of monster movie things that are happening in the real world and the people ironically watching a monster movie the way that those two things are coming together is really cool. I thought the art was really nice, clean uh, by Brian Hurt, which Ronnie, like a Chris Samney style art, a Darwin Cook uh, adjacent. So that's really nice. It really works in this monster world and just a really greatest first issue. Clementine, book two from Image Comics and Skybound by Tilly Walden. We actually interviewed Tilly Walden about this almost a year ago at this point. Maybe not quite that long, but she came on the live show to talk about this book. This is, per the name, a sequel 
to Clementine, the YA graphic novel set in the world of The Walking Dead, which itself is a sequel to the Telltale game, The Walking Dead Telltale game, which featured Clementine as main character. In the first book, we met up with Clementine as she met a bunch of other kids. They were trapped on a mountain together. It felt very harrowing and very dark. Here we're getting a new setting, a new place as they go by the seaside. But of course, it's the world of The Walking Dead, so they're zombies. Things are not all well. But we still dig very deeply into everything that's going on with Clementine. Justin, uh, again, I know we talked about this one a while ago, but now that the book is finally on stands, what do you think? I really, I mean, it's still, we, we got to read it uh, back then and rereading it now, like, it's really nice. It's such a nice, different way into the this universe. This paired with the Daryl Dixon television program, it's like, uh, what a buffet of entrees into the Walking Dead world. But this, you get to be like really close up to the characters. You get just a totally different tone and style. It's a really great read if you've been looking for another way into the Walking Dead world. If you're maybe even a uh, lapsed fan of the show, which maybe burned you out after a while. I know that's not you, but uh, it's, it's it's a good read. One of the things, this is going to sound like a little bit of a backhanded compliment, but I feel like People always criticize The Walking Dead for having a lot of wandering around, what's going on with the world, what's happened to the world type episodes. But giving Tilly Walton the room here to really explore these kids just living in the worst possible circumstances, dealing with their teen issues, their life issues in this world that is surrounded by zombies, you know it's all going to fall down eventually because that's what always happens in the world of The Walking Dead. But... You really do have that time to sit with them, and I feel like that pace that maybe doesn't work for TV all the time because you want to see the action, you want to see things pushed through, really works here in a YA graphic novel where you expect that sort of introspection. You expect that sort of digging deep into characters. So I really enjoyed this. This is, like you said, a great introduction into the world. Definitely pick up the first book. You don't need to have played the game, and then dive right into the second one. I'm looking forward to more. Another uh, another harrowing horror franchise, Aliens Annual Number One from Marvel, written by Declan Shalvey, art by Daddy Earls. This is actually a prequel to the arc that Declan, I believe it's a prequel to the arc that Declan yes. Shalvey did previously, which was set on an ice planet where a bunch of aliens were frozen under the ice. They, of course, broke out and attacked and killed a bunch of humans. Here we find out how they ended up in the ice, and we also get some equally dangerous. Actually, eldritch horror, I would say, looking creatures who are fighting against them. And also, other than a bunch of growling and stuff, it's a mostly silent issue, which I thought was a really neat choice. What did you think about this one, Justin? Uh, same. I, I like this. I, the fact that it goes back, we just finished this arc and uh, really liked it, I think. It sort of moved in fits and starts, feeling more like a classic alien story and less. And this... The fact that it was just sort of a visual story and a non-human story. It was about other creatures getting totally worked by the xenomorphs. Um, And I like that this thing in the Marvel comics is the xenomorphs sort of can take on new qualities. They it feels they're such bug like creatures that it feels like they can just well, do that. Th- that comes from the movies where whatever they infect, like when they infected a dog, you had the alien that kind of crawled around on all fours, and they've had other things like that. But to your point, I think they've really pushed it very hard in the comics yeah. in a way that maybe you can't do because ultimately you have to have a human in that alien costume somewhere crawling around on set. So yeah, it, it looks great, and I love expanding the world into other creatures and stuff. Very, very fun, and you don't have to have read the previous arc or anything like that to jump right into this. Birds of Prey, number two from DC Comics, written by Kelly Thompson, excuse me, art by Leonardo Romero. Black Canary is putting together a team of hardcore ladies to try to rescue her sister Sin and (laughs) Phoebus Scara, as we find out in this issue. Well, we found out that potentially they were dealing with the end of the world. We find out kind of what's happening. Some sort of entity is going to enter into sin through no fault of Themyscira. They don't have a lot of time. They don't want to deal with politics. They just got to get on the island, get her, and get out of there. And that's the whole plan. But after a getting the band together issue in the first issue, here we get to see them in action together in a surprising way. 
I continue to really love this comic. I think the dynamic is great. Kelly Thompson is great with the humor. And Leonardo Romero's art, it it feels like I, I want to see a newsprint version of this is what it feels like. Like I want to, uh-huh. I want the sort of thing where like I'm picking it up and I'm getting the ink on my hands a little bit. It feels like that sort of old school comic to me. Yeah, I agree with that. I've been trying to place what this art feels like. And it, you know, it, it reminds me of Wednesday comics, the uh, event from many years ago now where DC put their comics in on newsprint. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Totally agree with that. Uh, that is a and, very good call. And that's so, like, that really is, is such a difference maker with this book. And the it's really starting to be fun as well as heartfelt, which is tricky balance, visually, just the art fighting these sort of big uh, yellow monsters that they fight mm-hmm. over the course of it, I thought was really dope. And the whole thing's just a good package. It's set so firmly in the DC universe that we get to see a lot of characters we know and love. Yeah. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Midlife or How to Hero at 50. This one is out October 11th from Image Comics, written by Brian Bucciolato, art by Stefano Simeone. This is, per the title, about a regular guy. We get to see a lot of his life. We get to see how his life hasn't quite turned out the way that he wanted. He is working essentially as a beat cop. Seems like a nice guy. He's helping out a homeless dude who is just trying to live his life in the park. And unfortunately he's got to kick him out. He has a baby on the way by the end. And I'm going to spoil this here a little bit, but this has a, to be a classic image comic structure of spending every part of the issue, except for the last page on really giving you the emotional life of these characters, setting them up. And then you have the sci-fi twist at the end here, which you'll probably figure out by the title. Um, and the cover as well. Uh, so it's not too much of a surprise. But I don't know. Again, this like work for me, I get a little frustrated by that image comic structure because we see it so much. But ultimately, if you do it well, I understand why it's there. I understand that last page is supposed to suck you in. You're like, okay, now I got to check out the second issue. But ultimately, what's going to keep me back is I like this guy. I like this central character. He seems like a good guy. Um, he seems identifiable. His problems are big, but not too big. Like they're realistic yes. big. And I really appreciated that. I feel like it's rare where, even though it is that sort of classic formula where the last page is the page and the rest of it is sort of getting us there, this does a really good job of of taking us on a very real journey to get there. And I believe this person, like you're saying, and you know, I like the reveal at the end. It's very sort of cinematic, very like mm-hmm. movie. It reminded me of Unbreakable, uh, that mm-hmm. movie in a lot of ways. That's a good call. So yeah. if you're if you're a fan of that, this will be a good book to get in. And I just hope they can sort of keep that vibe because despite the fact that Unbreakable is like a superhero origin story that which we've seen a million times, we don't really see that kind of story where the hero has to really figure it out. And like the weightlifting scene in, in Unbreakable is like such a nice moment. This book has the potential to do those real, like real life versions of that. And I'd like to see that. Yeah. Back to books that are coming out this week. The Devil That Wears My Face, number one from Mad Cave, written by David Pepos, art by Alex Cormack. This is, I just want to mention, we had David uh, at our table at Baltimore Comic-Con, and we interviewed him. You can listen to the interview there, and you can hear this happening on the interview. He was talking about this book there, gave us the pitch, and it was such a good pitch that somebody literally who was walking by the table was like, whoa, that sounds cool, <laughs> in the middle of the interview. And and that's not a plant. That's no, a real person. A plant. That was a real person. But the idea here, I'm actually trying to remember exactly what his pitch was, but it's basically face-off meets the exorcist, is what I think he said. Yeah. And again, this is something that we don't exactly get until the end of the issue, but uh, that's what it is, and it works, and it seems Uh. fun. I feel like I'm always a little hesitant about 
a book that's set back in like the 1600s or the 1700s because you're going to get a lot of privies and thous and it's going to feel very stiff. But this is David leading into like action movie tropes. It feels like what was that Russell Crowe movie, The Pope's Exorcist, that came out? It feels like you yeah. could sit on a shelf right next to that Blu-ray or something like that. Very fun. Nice. I had a good time. Blu-ray and comic book. Who? Someone's making a man cave over here. <laughs> Give me a Sprite, right? That's the most hardcore uh, drink I could think of. Yep, definitely for your man cave it is. This, uh, I agree, this book is fun. It it works through that premise and establishes it, create, generates it in a way that doesn't feel like schlocky or gimmicky. It really sneaks up on it. Art's cool and uh, scary. Very fun. Good stuff. All right. Next one, X-Men number 27 from Marvel, written by Jerry Dugan, art by Phil Noto. In this issue, some big stuff is going down as Shadowcat finally finds the location of Cyclops and finds what state he's in. She also tries to rescue Juggernaut, and that doesn't quite go well. And then we have a bunch of other things going on in the world of X-Men at the same time. By the way, I know we haven't really done our Fall of X podcast in a while. Sorry about that, anybody who's been listening. But we got a lot of podcasts going on, and we'll get caught up. Well, get caught up because we can go back and do last week's and this week's, combine them together and just do a big old rundown of the whole Mm -hmm. fall of X sitch. But in in brief here for the stack, what did you think about this? And what do you think about the state of specifically the X-Men book right now? Well, I like that we're getting to the pieces like Cyclops being off the board for a long time, I think is I'm glad we got back here now. I also like how more Orcus being really diabolical. This scene there with, with Juggernaut and Cyclops is really cool. Uh, so really liking that. I like that, uh, that Shadowcat is our, our in character, our sort of like everywhere character who is really driving the action forward is fun. I still don't know the X-Men team, mm-hmm. the way they work. I still I want sort of a, a mission statement for them. This is the team that Sync is running uh, with Rasputin, this character from the future that who has five different. We get a lot more about her here, uh, which yeah. I really liked. It, it feels but like I, so I just they, want more they, of a mission statement. Yeah, I mean, they go visit visit the Fantastic Four and try to get some help from them. It feels. It feels like a lot of logistics there. Like there's some fun stuff. There's fun stuff with the Fantastic Four. There's fun stuff with them essentially doing a Harry Potter flying car instead of their Blackbird. That's all very enjoyable. Um, And the Rasputin character is very fun. Um, I, I think it, to me, feels like we had this whole rift between the Fantastic Four and X-Men. They had a whole crossover comic that came out a year back, two years back, something like that. Right. Um, and this was repairing that rift, so it felt like moving the chess pieces around the board a little bit to me. It definitely did. A lot of the conversation was like, well, you know, I don't really like you, but I love helping out my friends. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it makes sense they were sort of jumping over a little hurdle, continuity hurdle they had to get. I, I think the problem that I'm having is I want bigger moves from X-Men, the book, in the middle of Fall of X. Like, I want that to mm. be the thing this is a phrase you've used a lot, but I want that to be the thing that's leading everything, and that's not quite what we're getting here, it feels like. Yeah, and I also feel like despite the fact that we know that January is when this is beginning to wrap up, it feels like we're still in table-setting phase pretty yeah. firmly. This issue especially is doing a lot of that, making it feel like Rasputin is going to be a more important character. I think we should have more of a – that's what I'm saying, a more directional mission from – Shadowcat, Firestar. One of these characters has been set up as the driver. And Shadowcat just feels like we're following her, like, deliver the mail to all the X-Men. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, hey, I can, I'm going to go kill this person. It's like just doing the news. And I want to see, like, the, the spine. You don't, want, you don't want the news. You want the weather is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the don't weather's the news. Give me the, the, news, news give me the weather. The, Spit in my face. Yeah, the weather's the news of the air. Hmm. Blue Beetle number two from DC Comics, written by Josh Trulio, art by Adrian Gutierrez. In this, we are getting the Red Beetle. Is that the name of the character? Um, Tracks. That was, um, I think, George was the Red Beetle, right? Uh, wait, what? George Lopez? 
uh, Paul McCartney, oh, George. George from the Beatles. The Beatles, the yeah. band. I remember them. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting a new villain for Jaime. Jaime is very much caught in the middle. He's frustrated because Ted Cord got attacked and is in the hospital. Um, I I was thinking a lot about what you and Pete said reading this issue because I think both of you were a little frustrated about the lack of focus on Jaime. And I said, don't worry, they got this in hand. There's a focus on Jaime. There's even less of a focus on Jaime in this issue, which was yeah. a bit of a bummer for me. He's sad. You get to know about Ted Cord's sister, who seems to be approaching main character status for this Blue Beetle comic. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit wide ranging and... The, but I will say that one of the positives, I think this Red Beetle character is very scary and mm-hmm. um, a good villain. So, like, I like that as an upcoming, the the big threat that we're, we're dealing with. It's here. But, again, little, I think it's yeah. too wide. The range is too wide. With, it's all feeling a little Power Rangers to me, which all yeah. apologies to anybody who likes Power Rangers. That's not quite my speed. So, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I want to get back to Jaime. What does this mean for Jaime? It feels like they're expanding the world into all of these different colors, which I understand is necessary. They're also touching on the movie, clearly. Um, I, I like this. I like the art. I like the tone of it. I think they've got the Blue Beetle down. We just need to get back to Blue Beetle himself. Yeah. Sacrificers, number three from Image Comics, written by Rick Remender, art by Max Femura, a.k.a. the one where the Remender comes out. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, it does, you know, we've been waiting three issues. Uh, we've been following two different storylines. One, these gods who rule over the world who are doing the very like Game of Thronesy god stuff uh, here and there. And then we're following these different animal creatures down on the world who worship these gods. It seems like one youngling from each different family or group is taken to be a sacrificer. We don't know what that means. Certainly the word is pretty ominous. And here we find out what that is, in fact, uh, after they're taken to a lovely place. Spoilers here, but it turns out that the gods drink joy. And so the way that they do that is they get the kids as happy as possible and then suck all of the joy out of their bodies. Tap, toss them tap them. Tap them. Tap them like the a gods keg. drink them. Uh, yeah, it was somehow, somehow worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so, well, I will say because we talked about how there's dread on the horizon for these characters. They it almost feels like it's not going to go that way. Last issue, this issue, it does. I think the way that it was like a chair with a secret spike in it was especially visceral. Um, yeah. And shouts are a reminder for catching us off guard with that. He's so, he's so good at that. But it also makes me think in this issue, like this series seems to be about class warfare. Uh, and that's a great topic, I think, for Remender, something that suffuses his other books. So to see that here and to maybe actually have it be wide open about that and our main uh, bird guy character to be someone who can maybe be a hero here would be yeah. really cool. Yeah, that's a very good call. He definitely calls that out in the back matter, saying, eat the rich. Uh, and yeah, in in Russia, rich eat you is what I always mm, say. Yes. Eat the rich, but drink the poor, I think is the point, the <laughs> subtitle. Oh, of no, that's the full maxim. Star yeah. Trek Halloween number one, excuse mm. me, hollow. Ween, number one, from IDW, written by Chris Sakura, art by Jill Isa. This is actually not an ongoing series, but a miniseries, I believe, set on the next-gen Enterprise, where the holodeck goes absolutely crazy and starts releasing horrible monsters on the entire crew. It's classic Halloween adventure. They're also... At the same time, Data is trying to set up a Halloween on Different Worlds party for everybody, which I feel like they're going to reevaluate at some point. Yeah. Um, my big takeaway here from this issue, even beyond the story, was it was so good to see Joe Eisma's art again. Loved him yeah. on Morning Glories. I know he's done a yes. bunch of stuff in between, but for I feel like I've missed a lot of it, and this brought me right back to that with the characterizations. I love his clean, hard lines that he has around all of the characters. Great art. And just a great like renderings of these Star Trek The Next Generation characters, and such a specific era targeted here of like sort of late in the the series the tv series where you've got 
Uh, Lieutenant Barkley is sort of here, mm-hmm. me and him like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing over here, self. Uh, uh, Deanna's in a, a more power position and sort of leading a lot of the story here. We get a lot of our potential holodeck uh, callbacks. It's If you're a Next Generation fan, and this whole Star Trek line has been pushing this, but this book, very targeted Next Generation, late period, this is definitely a pickup. Doctor Strange, number eight from Marvel, written by Jed McKay, art by Pascal Ferry. In this series, there is a thousands-of-year-old general, Doctor Strange, who is basically trying to destroy Doctor Strange and all of his old enemies and kill a bunch of people. Of course, our Doctor Strange is not going to have any of that. It looked like Clea was betraying Doctor Strange, but of course she's Mm. not. She's actually trying to pull a little bit of feint there. Then we set up for the next conflict. Here's my big criticism of this book. This is a Uh-oh. straight up don't rip like it. Off. This is a straight up ripoff of gods, right? Like you have these two <laughs> characters and gods, and then you have this Doctor Strange and Clea character, and it's basically the same thing. Like, why do that? Yeah, uh, Jonathan Hickman has uh, applied for a copyright claim against this book. It's <laughs> coming for Doctor Strange. Yeah. The- this is my what maybe my favorite read of the week. Like I just love the way this story is unfolding, creating this great villain, Doctor Strange, as his own worst enemy, the most powered up, like l- no morals, Doctor Strange. Because we're getting the simultaneous, like I'm from a farm, I grew up here, I'm a just a regular old human, and this general that is the most hardest, hardest pounded, edged monster that you could have out there. And I love the twist at the end that I won't spoil, but I thought was very, very cool. Here's the thing. You're Cray for McKay. That's true. That's true. And that's the way I'm going to be. So you shut your mouth about anything bad. (laughs) All right. DC's ghouls just want to have fun. Number one from DC Comics, written by Ellen Tremitty, Kenny Porter, Michael W. Conrad, Christopher Sean, and Linnea. Gregory Burnham, Adam F. Goldberg, and Hans Rodanoff, and John Arcudi. Art by Tyler Crook, Riley Rosmo, Christopher Mitten, Dexter Soy, Alex Galler, Danny Earls, Sean McManus. Now, this is, as you can probably figure out, a collection of spooky horror stories set in the DC universe. However, despite the name of the book, there are barely any female creators of the book and barely any female characters. It's focusing on a lot of the male characters, which, to be <laughs> honest, threw me a lot because it felt like, oh, OK, I'm up for some fun, spooky horror stories with like Black Canary and Batwoman and a bunch of other people. That's not what it is at all. It's it's just a name. Um, but on the more positive <laughs> side, the art throughout this book is phenomenal. Like some of Fantastic. my absolute favorite creators. This is gorgeous looking. Uh, and some really gruesome horror art throughout. So if you're looking for a spooky good time at DC, this is one to check out. Yeah. And, but I will say I highlighting some of these that I liked, I we do have Renee Montoya as the question. At the beginning in the first story, which I yes, love. well, that's what tricked me because I was like, "Oh, cool, we get Renee yeah. Montoya." Question: Who else is coming? No other ladies. All right, no other women. Uh, but I love that Tyler Crook art. Uh, the next story, the Green Lantern Demon uh, Etrigan story, I thought was really great with Riley Rosmo on art. And the way that Demon transforms now, I'm like, you're basically the same dude. It's like when a dog <laughs> takes on the looks of its owner. Like, Jason Blood is just like, dude, you look like the Demon now. You got, you're very bulgy, <laughs> sharp features. Grow a beard or something. Soften it up. Relax. I also love the Animal Man story, Robot Man. Just a lot of fun in here. Yeah, really fun collection. Just don't, uh, ladies, not allowed. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't know. Release a second one, please, that actually includes the female characters. The Enfield Gang Massacre, number three, from Image Comics, written by Chris Condon, art by Jacob Phillips. The conflict between the Enfield Gang and the lawman in town amps up in a absolutely bonkers way, leading to a double-page spread in here that made me, like, guffaw, I think, the same way I would it as a wild action movie scene. This feels... Like, uh, obviously, it's in comics and it's great in comics, but this feels like you could put it right on screen as a movie and it would be yeah. like blow the roof off. Yeah, it's fantastic. This is my other favorite read of the week. Like, it's beautifully drawn. The story is really great. It has real historical background. We get a lot of that context in the back matter. 
it feels like a great movie, but also this is the kind of graphic novel or uh, a comic that you could like teach in a class about comics because it's bringing real stories from the real world to life in the comic form. And it's, you know, it has to be done in this form the way that they do it. It's just very good. Great Western story carrying on the that Texas blood vibe in a whole new way. Totally agreed. Next up, Alice Cooper, number one from Dynamite, written by Rodney Barnes, art by Edu Mena. In this book, I think what's happening is that the devil is trying to challenge Alice Cooper. But the entire time, Alice Cooper seems much more focused on is he getting old and what's going to happen to his career mm. and has his has his uh, audience moved on. And in fact, they have. They're all zombies now, literal zombies. So that's kind of what's happening here. I will say I like Rodney Bard's writing. I don't know anything yeah. about Alice Cooper, and I wasn't 100% sure what was going on in this story. This feels like the rare comic that really lives up to its title, where mm-hmm. it's like, hey, this is an Alice Cooper comic. You better like Alice Cooper, because that's definitely what's happening here. Uh, so, uh, it, but it's good. The art's good, and it's mm-hmm. got some great stuff to it. It's just like, I'm with you. I was like, oh, this is very internal to Alice Cooper. <laughs> well, it kept it kept cutting between scenes of Lucifer being like, I must challenge Alice Cooper to the biggest battle of the bands of all time. And then we cut back to Alice Cooper and be like, what is my life? What is it? Yeah. Become? <laughs> I was like, all right, I I can't get right, on the tone of it. Okay, calm down, Alice Cooper. Immortal X-Men number 16 from Marvel, written by Kira Gillen, art by Lucas Wernock. This is following two stories here. One is Professor Xavier versus Sebastian Shaw and Celine for what remains of Krakoa. And then meanwhile, we finally find out exactly where we are with these other 250,000 mutants who are being led by Exodus and Hope and kind of led by Destiny. They've encountered Mother Righteous, Apocalypse, and a bunch of Wolverine clones seem to be there, but maybe they aren't. We're not 100% sure what's going on, but we get a lot of clarity about that by the end of this issue. Contrast to X-Men, the book, this is making some big moves for me in exactly the right way. Mm. And I love what's going on here. Uh, what do you think? It's it's still it's still operating on the fringes for me where I'm like, there's just a, another, there's a bunch more shoes that are going to drop here. And I want a little bit of clue. Like Mother Righteous is, is up to something. We get Jean Grey here. Uh, and I actually like the way that it connects directly to the Jean Grey book that we've been talking about feels mm-hmm. separate from so much of this. And actually, maybe it's much more present than we thought it would be. Uh, so that's cool. And the the twist at the end, I'm like, I don't know what this means. I don't know what it means. But it is interesting. I, it's sort of the books are sort of just doing the. Each one needs to be more like the other. Mm-hmm. This one's making moves, and I'm not sure what they mean. The other <laughs> one isn't making moves, but I know everything that's happening. Well, I'll say, so first of all, on the Professor Xavier ad, Professor Xavier essentially doing Home Alone with Sebastian's dad and Celine as the wet bandits. Great. I am 100% yeah. <laughs> having a great time reading that storyline. The other one... I actually think that's a good place for it to be where you're not sure what's going on. Big spoiler here to talk about the reveal, but the reveal at the end is they realize where they are is the white hot room. The white hot room is the place where, to your point about Jean Grey, that's where she goes after she dies. It's sort of a transitory afterlife. It's also a mental space, I think, that only exists mentally. It's a little undefined there, but what it means that they are there, are they dead? Are they protected by the Phoenix? What exactly is happening? We don't know. And I think that's a great cliffhanger to leave us on in a place where we're like, exactly what you said. What does this mean? Tune in next issue to find out more information. Well, but it's sort of like they're like, "Ah, I've been wondering where these characters are. They're in the white hot room. Bye. And it's like, (laughs) what? wait, sorry. I have nine more questions about that. Yeah, answer the next issue. That's how comics work. I don't need to explain. The white hot room, that's like just saying there's just a bunch of words and letters together. Doesn't, there's no real like, oh, Well, no I think real maybe part of your problem is the white hot room is relatively undefined anyway. Like there's no rules around it. Like Outback Steakhouse, white hot room, no rules, just right. Oh, yeah. And the bloom and onion there is actually just a bunch of uh, fried Wolverine claws coming out of the plate. <laughs> 
Fire and Ice, welcome to Smallville, number two from DC Comics, written by Joanne Starer, art by Natasha Bustos. Fire and Ice, for the title, have moved to Smallville. They moved into a hair salon, and Fire is trying to drum up interest in the heroes, while Ice is just trying to live her life or figure out what her life is next. Uh, this started moving for me better in the second issue. I'm still not quite yeah. there with the comedy. It's not quite hitting as like a laugh-out-loud book, but I do like the domestic drama. Like it feels to me, they described it as Shit's Creek with superheroes. It feels to me a little more like a CW hour long drama with superheroes kind of, which I don't mind. Well, I actually thought that some of the, the comedy did work a little bit better for me, especially when they introduce all the other heroes or characters with powers, we should say there are some fun jokes in there. I thought, and the, I see what you mean by the CW of it all. Like it's very much like I'm trying to solve this problem. And then, and it has that pace of sort of slowly moving through a very, not that the problem's obvious, but like we are, we recognize what's happening here because we've seen it before. But it, like you said, it is working a lot better for me in the second issue. Yeah. Spellcasters, Major League Magic from Saturday Originals, written by Seth Singleton, art by George Duarte. Uh, this is excuse me, available online, I think. I don't know if there's a print copy, but you can definitely get it from Amazon uh, through, you know, not Comixology, but through Amazon. And this is uh, about a world where magic is a major league sport. The first issue, we are following a couple of characters who are trying to work their way up through the junior leagues into the major leagues. And spoiler, that's kind of where we end up at the end of the first issue. What do you think about this one, Justin? It's fun. I I think the premise is, you know, we definitely get it. It, We've been adjacent to worlds like this before. And the art is very approachable. It's very even. You know, it's not like reinventing the comic book form, but like it's very much like if you're just a fan of of magic and magical worlds, you're looking for something to fill a Harry Potter hole in your Harry Potter heart. I think this could be a good pickup. Yeah, I have a Harry Potter hole where I've buried all of my Harry Potter stuff because of the transphobic thing that J.K. Rowling says. <laughs> yeah, the I, I think hole. you weren't on the show when we had the guy from Saturday Originals on. I think that was just me and Pete, but he was talking about they're trying to create these things that feel like lost Saturday morning cartoons, and that's definitely mm. what this feels like here. I wish it was paced up a little bit. The place that it gets to at the end where. Again, spoiler, they're finally in the major leagues and starting out. That's I want that to happen like halfway through this issue rather than spending so much time on them being down in the dumps about stuff because we know they're going to get there more eventually. And it's just more fun and more interesting once they're trading and they're out of their depth and all of these other things rather than the place they are most of the book, which is kind of up and winning, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, like you said, it's an engaging magic world and I'm curious to check out the next one. Abbott, 1979, number one from Boob Studios, written by Saladin Ahmed, art by Sammy Kivella. This is following a journalist who can fight away dark creatures with her light powers. She is extremely depressed throughout this. Yeah. Can't work out of it, and it puts her in a horrifically bad place by the end here. I haven't really kept up with the Abbott series, to be honest. I think we've kind of popped in here and there with them. But I found this really solidly written. I felt like you didn't need to read the rest of the stuff to understand what is going on with this character, what she's going through. And like I said, the end of the issue is so dark and interesting. I'm very curious to check out the next one. Yeah, I found this also very dark and sort of like I'd be tired and in a bad mood if I were her too, being constantly woken up in the middle of the night with uh, fighting off a very real sleep paralysis demon, it feels Mm -hmm. like. Uh, So, but the art's great and it feels, I also don't know too much about the the Abbott world. Um, I love that the spinoff Abbott Elementary, Mm -hmm. Uh, but otherwise. um, And that's set in 2021 and 2022, right? Yeah, which is a little more. They seem like, to. I got to be honest. Like, I understand what you're saying. It's a very funny show, but they forgot a lot about the battle of light and dark stuff. Maybe that's coming yeah. out in the next season. They just maybe they fighting. solved it between 1979 and 2021. Like, no they more evil it out. in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's problem solved. Fantastic Four, number 12 from Marvel, written by Ryan North, art by Ivan Coelho. In this issue, once again, the Fantastic Four are dealing with a weird sci-fi adventure. Here, they get sent to a dinosaur <laughs> world. 
Well, they don't initially speak dinosaur language, so that's something they got to figure out. And by the end, uh, things get amped up in a way that you both can expect and maybe not predict at the same time. Um, yeah. I just can't believe that they have managed to keep this up for 12 issues. I felt sure that we'd get done in one adventures for the first couple, and then they would go into some sort of major Fantastic Four art arc. I love the fact that they're not. I love that they're just giving us these, like, it feels like uh, old school beginning of Fantastic Four. Yep, we're going to do one, two issue arcs and that's it. And then yeah. something weird happens and they deal with it. Uh, I, I really like this series as well because I, I think it is like that, that bite size, just great, good vibes, Fantastic Four stories. Um, I don't want this to sound at all like an insult, but it feels like Jonathan Hickman, uh, like Muppet Babies, where it's like, <laughs> It's like Jonathan Hickman's style stories with like some density, some science behind it, but it's also fun, light, and the stuff that happens is is interesting, but it doesn't have to be like deep continuity rattling stuff. It's just fun and sort of in the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's very much an extension of what Ryan North was doing on Squirrel Girl, where that was always not so subtly sneaking in STEM concepts in every issue here. We're not exactly getting science concepts per se, but it's certainly like a very twilight zone sci-fi esque thing that happens to the fantastic four. And he explores it as logically as possible. Plus you get Ivan Quellis art, which is some great solid superhero art and good stuff. Peacemaker tries hard. Number six from DC comics written by Kyle Starks art by Steve Pugh. This is the final issue of this black label series that is perfect for fans of the TV show, to the point that Peacemaker even looks like John Cena here. He is going up against Monsieur Mala and the Brain, who is now on the body of Chemo, along with the Red Bee, who has a bone to pick with both of those villainous characters. And this wraps up, I thought, perfectly. It is very funny, very sweet and sad and heartfelt at the same time, Um, and pretty much a perfect last couple of pages that really tie everything together. I had a blast reading this book, and I, I yeah, I, if you missed it, definitely pick it up at the trade because it's a very fun one. Agree. Shouts to the Red Bee, a character that I really came to love over the course of this series. And it's, uh, I, the, there's great big action here, like when the, the war wheel collides with the big dude. I was like, this is like a movie. And mm-hmm. that's that's really nice to to go out with a bang while still having time to really get back to Peacemaker's bona fides for the last the back half of the comic. Yeah. And not to keep talking about the TV show, but I think the mix that they hit here in terms of the amount of profanity and the ridiculous over the top stuff, but also getting to the fact that Peacemaker's a real guy who really is trying hard per the title that was present to the show. It's channeled perfectly in the comic book, but you also have Steve Pugh's art, which I think he is the commensurate DC comedy artist at this point. So great to see. Love this book. Tear Us Apart, number two from Dark Horse Comics, written by Jay Baruchel and Van Jensen, art by Alessandro Michelli. This is about a, I want to say, cult training group. I don't know what it is. Basically, they're trained as assassins, so they have the power to tear people apart, blow them apart with their minds. But also, one of them might tear apart the entire world. Young boy and girl have gone on the run from this organization and are experiencing the real world for the first time. I think we were really impressed by the first issue, if I remember. How do you think the second issue held up? Enjoying it. Like, I, I don't know if you remember the book The Giver from back when you were a kid mm-hmm. about sort of getting out into a I saw the Taylor Swift movie, so yeah. Yeah, you get it. I don't know. Is she credited with that movie? <laughs> I'm not sure. She's officially? That and Cats? The, yeah. Uh, but this this feels like a little bit like a assassin's version of that story. And the more we get into these two kids and their sort of protective relationship with each other and out into the world stuff, I think is really where the power is in this story. Totally agree. And I really like the art as well. There's a huge reliance because it's a snowy setting on these white watches and then, of course, having blood spattered on them at the same time. There's weird creatures throughout this book as well. So visually, it's very intriguing. I think, like you're saying, we kind of know where the story is going, but there's a pleasure in seeing that happen at the same time. So good stuff. Vampirella. Yes, it reminds Ooh. me. It reminds me of the Jeff Lemire series, Little Monsters in the Art. Yeah, that's a good call as well. 
Vampirella, Dead Flowers, number one from Dynamite, written by Sarah Frazetta and Bob Freeman, art by Alberto Locatelli. This is a back-in-the-day story of Vampirella accidentally ending up in somebody's will and getting mixed up with some other monsters, as well as a special guest appearance from a young, completely jacked Frank Frazetta drawing Vampirella in the middle of the book. Like, that dude, oh my god, his arms are like... Snakes? I don't know. What is that? Oh, that is a big thing, a snake. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the fact that Sarah Frazetta is one of the writers is maybe a, a direct maybe. Uh, maybe. connection there? Possibly. How often do you get accidentally put into someone's will? Does um, it happen a lot all, to you? All the time, but it's usually some sort of weird Saw-style punishment. Ah, that's cool. I know. You keep you have another Saw punishment this weekend. Uh, I like the different art on Vampirella here. It has sort of like a... Like, really feel the past in the Mm -hmm. the fact this story takes place in the past here, which I think is nice. And the Vampirella universe feels like a chaotic place. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what she's all about. So we're just having some fun all the time. And her character sort of floats through all of it. It seems like I, I wish there were, this is a stupid thing to say, it sounds like, but I really mean it. I wish there were less words here because there's a lot Mm. of dialogue going back and forth throughout the issue. And the action speaks for itself. I feel like you could have cut it down to half the dialogue and have it be like the, hey, what do you mean, wise guy type thing? And that's pretty much it. And would have felt all of a piece. Instead, we're getting a lot of over-talking here and a little bit of overwriting. So it was hard to hold on to the story. But like you said, it's not exactly... uh, Retro is probably the wrong word. There's another word that I'm blanking on. But uh, the art is very stylized, and it's good to see. X-Force number 45 from Marvel, written by Benjamin Percy, art by Robert Gill. We are continuing the story of um, the Strike Force team that was strike back against themselves mm-hmm. and are basically on their back legs. We're getting caught up with a lot of them here, leading to a cliffhanger that really changes everything going on in this book. I know you've been digging this one. What did you think, Justin? I like it. It's very trippy. Th- mm-hmm. This issue especially, I'm like... This one feels like, for as much as Kieran Gillen's book, Immortal X-Men, feels like it's, you know, sort of in this fantastical realm, this feels like watching, like, a a horror show from, like, the 70s, 80s. Like, we're getting some, like, just body horror stuff. We're getting, like, sort of mindscapes and things like that. So, I I like it. It feels like it's doing – and then in the middle, we get, like, sort of a comedy scene with Deadpool. Mm-hmm. where he dives in the pool and they're like, hey, you know, open sores in the pool. <laughs> I was like, this book is hitting a lot of tones, but it definitely feels like sort of the crunchy fringe of the X-Men world right now. And I like that. That's where X-Force should be. Well, it's interesting that you like this. You're like, I like the crunchy fringe, but with the other things, you want them to kind of get to it and have something central. But they're the main stories. They were yeah. talking about X-Men sure. and Immortal X-Men. This is X-Force. They're always doing something stabby and, and strange. Right. Force is always to the side of men in some way. Mm, I don't know what I mean by that. Poison Mm -hmm. Ivy, number 15 from DC Comics, written by G. Willow Wilson, art by Mercio Takara. In this issue, Poison Ivy is trapped inside a fun house that is controlled by a flower-faced man, and only Killer Croc can team up with her to help save her and herself to help save herself. I love this book. I love that this team has stayed so consistent for 15 issues. I, it is, again, a perfect Halloween-style book to have Poison Ivy trapped at this weird house she can't get out of. It's basically a haunted house story that's going on here, except plant-infused. Um, I thought this was great. So I feel the same. We, I think we've liked every issue of this book. What a mm-hmm. great the, this, what a great surprise this Poison Ivy series as a whole. It does a great job of just weaving in really interesting character stuff, some philosophy, and then just great one off stories. This villain being like interesting, unique, and then what a come up for Killer Croc. He's just mm-hmm. a regular buddy now. He's not even like a scary jerk. I don't know if this is actually accurate because I haven't read as much of it as you, but this feels like a great modern take on Swamp Thing, except with Poison Ivy, where we're getting Mm. a lot of new, weird, dark villains for her. We're getting the overall Lamia Spores plot. It's still very plant-based, obviously, so maybe that's what I'm drawn to it, but it feels like there's always this bigger mythology pushing on into the background at the same time. Yeah, I think that's fair, though this is definitely rooted firmly in, like, the superhero universe, as rooted. opposed to Swamp Thing was super out uh, out of that. Uh, but but I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. 
Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the Scorpius run number two from IDW, written by Mike Johnson and Ryan Parrott, art by Angel Hernandez. This is set in the continuity of the titular show. Here, the crew has been split up onto a bunch of different ships and forced to fight a classic death race type scenario by this godlike being. Christopher Pike, Captain Pike, is trying to figure out what's going on and how they can get everybody out of this alive. And he gets a few terrible hiccups by the end here. I love this. Like, I love this is perfectly channeling the show. A race is hard to do on a still comic book page because you're not getting that speed there. But this is totally working for me. And I think there's some really interesting big character moves here, particularly with Spock. I thought the thing he gets thrown out to this other alien ship that helps him, as usual, kind of figure out how to integrate his human and his Vulcan side. Uh, This is really good stuff. Yeah, this is this reminds me of like a Star Wars TV show take on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, like it's yep. very much like let's go, come on, like not a ton of like the more meticulous Star Trek stuff you expect, like we were talking about with the earlier TNG series and perhaps the series we're going to talk about in a second. <laughs> but I see why you like this. Uh, it is fun in the way that you like Star Trek. Very true. Interesting way of saying Star that. Wars. Because you yes. like Star Wars, really. I, I really like Star Wars. Forget about Star Trek or the Star Trek hat that I'm wearing right now. Ranger uh, Academy, number Netflix. one for Boob Studios, written by Maria Ingrand Mora, art by Joe Migyong. This is about a kid who lives on a planet, meets some kids who are going to Ranger Academy, the school where you learn how to be a Power Ranger. And ultimately, by the end, she gets recruited and heads there herself. I... Two things are working against this with me. One, like I said earlier, Power Rangers, not quite my thing, though I've enjoyed a bunch of the comics here and there. The second thing is this feels like this has the same problem as the Spellcasters thing, where the interesting thing is the school not being on an alien planet being like, should I go to school? And I just want them to get to that. Like the title is Ranger Academy. I want to see how Ranger Academy works. How do you trade to be a Power Ranger? This is something I've never seen before. I'm a total sucker for school-based sci-fi or fantasy stuff. So it was very, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory for me? I, I believe training to be a Power Ranger involves going to high school and then drinking milkshakes around <laughs> bulk and skull is the main training, as far yeah. as I know. Uh-huh. Uh, but I agree with you. I just wanted this to get to the thing, because as soon as you meet the characters, you're like, yep, this is. I see where this is going. Uh, so maybe the second issue will be the one that gets to it. Shazam, number four from DC Comics, written by Mark Wade, art by Dan Mora. Shazam, who is now called the Captain, is being... Aggressively so. It <laughs> said a lot in this issue. <laughs> yes, it said a lot. And I'll just mention we talked to Mark Wade about this choice at Baltimore Comic Con, so go check out the interview about that. He talked about the choice and why they needed to do it. But the Captain is being manipulated by the different gods that are in his name. They're taking turns, riding in his body. And uh, he starts to get an inkling of exactly what's going on here, or more specifically, Freddy does. Meanwhile, we have a bunch of other stuff, wild stuff bubbling in the background. We have a fight between Mars or the moon and Gorilla City mm-hmm. in space. There's a dinosaur with a top hat who's making people sign contracts. This just seems like Mark Wade having a goofy fun time. Goofy fun time. Dan Mora's art really supporting that. Shazam, the captain, is just like, sort of feels more like Captain Morgan, the way that he is about to make out with this lady in this issue. So that's a very horny Shazam moment and horny bee queen. Yeah, that's what the H stands uh, for, right? In Shazam. Yeah, in Shazam, I believe so. (laughs) Solomon, Solomon, horny. horny. Atlas. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Uh, Zitz. <laughs> Acne. Uh, but this is this is a fun. <laughs> they really push that angle. They really push. Originally, the book was sponsored by Clearasil, and it was called Captain Clearasil, and then they had yeah. to change that. That's why the M stands for money, so you can buy your Clearasil. Yep. Star Trek Defiant, number eight from IDW, written by Christopher Cantwell, art by Marek Fian. This is picking up after the Day of Blood storyline, where the crew of Defiant, who are basically the rogue crew of Star Trek folks. The X-Force. The X-Force, absolutely, of Star Trek folks, are called in by Starfleet and dishonorably discharged, essentially. Except for Spock, where they're like, you could just go, just get out of here. It's fine. They do whatever you want. Spock does a, Spock's like the star of all this. It's crazy. Yes. But I was very curious to check this one out to see now that we are past this event, what is the new status quo? What is the new arc here? Uh, and I think you're indicating that I probably didn't like this. I did like this. And okay, I, good. 
I like this because there were some fun moves with Worf here that I think really dug into his character. This feels like a fresh, clean start for this crew and this title. And I love the place they leave it in. It's definitely like playing to the rafters or whatever the expression is in terms of being like, yeah, hey, fans. Preaching to the choir. Preaching to the choir. Yeah, it's like, hey, fans, here's another character you want to see. Enjoy. But it's well, great. And like to to reset this this series that I was like, wow, they really put in all the bangers from any Star Trek show or series that you love. And then to do it again, like with the villains, the dossiers that are handed to this team, I won't spoil it, but it's so good. Love all those characters in here. And the fact that it, things seem to be shifting more toward a Deep Space Nine paradigm, I feel mm. like in this issue is an interesting transfer. Yeah. And the evil Tashiar that I always forget the name of just leaves this dangling bit of information for the crew as she's beating away. She's like, by the way, here's a terrible thing that's going on. See you later. So, again, it just feels like a really good, fresh setup for this book. If you haven't been reading it, you can jump right in with this one. Last but not least, The Joker, The Man Who Stopped Laughing, number 11 from DC Comics, written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Carmine D. and Gian Domenico in this Issue, we are. We thought we finally knew what was going on with these two Jokers, which was the real one, which was the fake one. We got the whole story about it. But as it turns out, of course, we were wrong. And there is a switch at a turn once again, as everything is converging on Gotham and all the heroes and all of the Jokers are going absolutely buck wild. This to me... I don't remember how we felt about the Joker War, but this to me feels like what the Joker War probably should have been because yeah. it's spiraling out in that classic Gotham way where just, oh, you thought things were bad? Nope, now the entire city is on fire. Yeah. Oops, all Jokers is what this should be called <laughs> because that's what we got. I feel like this is proving we don't actually need a Batman in this at all. It just mm-hmm. needs to be Jokers on Jokers and Jokers. And uh I... That I had a little pang of probably not fear is too strong, but like I had a little pang of worry mm-hmm. reading this issue that Batman is going to show up as the Deus Ex Machina in the last issue. I don't want to see him at all. I never no, want to get him show out of up. here. Yeah, Manhunter, great. Uh, Ravager, is that who it is? Ravager, yeah. yeah. Deathstroke's daughter, great character. Jason Todd, love him in this book. Um, all of this is so much fun. All of these Jokers are so much fun. All of the runoff characters. This is such a great book. I'm sad to see it. I assume it's going to wrap up in the next issue. Um, but maybe I not. I think so. It feels like it's going to wrap up. It feels like it's getting to like, look at, we truly have all the Jokers here. But I would read this as an ongoing where the totally. Joker's just like screwing around. <laughs> yeah. that's this what is he does also best. this two Jokers or multiple Jokers is way better than the three Jokers storyline that we got a while ago as well. Um, great yeah. stuff. Really good book. And that is it for the really stack. Great. If you'd like to support the show and all the shows we do, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Facebook and YouTube. Come hang out. We would love to chat with you about comics. Apple, Spotify, Android, or the app of your choice to subscribe, listen, and follow the show at Comic Book Live on Twitter slash X. Comic Book Club Live on TikTok and Instagram. ComicBookClubLive.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, we'll see you at the Comic Book Club. Transform. Come on, be jet ski.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.